life is not just about celebration. It's about living fully and fully means also losing and feeling pain and being able to get through the pain because painful loss and suffering is also important for growth. Welcome back to episode six of Real Men Do Cry. I'm your host, Jaren Deutsch. With me today are two well-respected and knowledgeable LA-based psychiatrists. First, I chat with Dr. Mark McDonald, a clinical psychiatrist board certified in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry with extensive training in adult psychoanalysis. He has a private practice located in West LA. We then cut to Dr. Sheeni Amberdar, the founder of Happiness Psychiatry. Dr. Amadar was recently chosen as a 2021 Southern California Super Doctor by the LA Times, and LA Magazine named her a top doctor in 2018. Dr. McDonald shed some light on the state of the youth, both positive and negative, and Dr. Amadar discusses ways to live a more positive life. I start with the same question for both guests and let the conversation go from there. Hope you guys enjoy. Let's get into the episode. What trends have you seen in your practice among your patient population since the start of COVID? Well, children and adolescents have become more anxious and more depressed over the last few years in general. That's a trend that had already begun long before uh, early 2020. And unfortunately, I believe it's accelerated rapidly since March and April of this year, specifically in areas of preoccupation with obsessions, with compulsions, with panic, with phobias. And I think a consequence of that, as well as a consequence of social deprivation and all of its forms has also led to a worsening of depression. And depression is a huge uh, gateway illness for all kinds of bad things like physical self-harming behaviors, uh, suicidal thoughts. Yeah. What is your professional opinion on the future of mental health in adolescence and youth? Well, I think if we don't turn the ship around, I think we're heading off a cliff. The increase in incidence just between this year and last year, according to the CDC's report last month of depression is 400%. 400% increase in incidence of depression reported by adolescents. There's also a tripling report of anxiety. And according to a published report that was reproduced by the CDC uh, even more recently, there is now a 25% report rate of adolescents who say, I've thought about seriously killing myself this year. Now that compares to single digits in prior years. So we're looking at somewhere between two to three, maybe even four times increase in suicidal thoughts. Unfortunately, we don't yet have really good data to compare actual completed suicides this year compared to last year. It's very hard to find, but I think it's reasonable to conclude that if you have a tripling or quadrupling of suicidal thoughts, you're going to have a a, a measurable increase in actual suicides. Now, obviously, if we can get our lives back to normal again soon, this will take some of the pressure off. But my, my larger concern is that there may have been a strain that's been placed on adolescents and children that has gone beyond just a temporary stress. A strain is actually a permanent deformity in the structure. So if you take a piece of plastic, you bend it back and forth, it'll stretch and it'll bounce back up to a point that's called stress. But if you bend it too far, you'll notice the plastic turns kind of white and the color fades. And then when you let go of it, it just stays in that position. And if you try to bend it back, it breaks into two. That's the result of strain. And children right now, I think have gone beyond stress. They're actually strained. 
And I'm not convinced that the day that we tell them that it's no longer unsafe to go outside and play with your friends and take your masks off and be normal, that they're actually going to be able to bounce back. I think there's going to be a wound, a scar, uh, how serious, how long lasting, I just don't know. But I don't think we're going to get uh, this generation back to the way they were a year ago. I think it's gone on far too long. Uh, we, they've lost now or will have lost uh, in the next two months an entire year of school. The idea that children going to Zoom school is roughly equivalent to real school is a joke and a lie. And I think any parent will tell you that. Nobody's benefiting from this, neither the parents nor the students. There is also a lot of family disruption and discord that occurs at home when kids are there uh, all day long, especially in single parent households, parents who um, need to work, uh, parents who are maybe suffering from drug problems or who abuse their children. Uh, abuse is not something that uh, is easily recoverable quickly. It also creates scars. I'm just listing a few of, of some of the, the most obvious problems. I don't think that when we return to normal that our kids are just going to bounce back, though. I think we need to be prepared for a, a surge in needs for children, for therapy, for psychiatric care, for social services. And, and I don't know if we're actually even thinking about that right now. And I think also the uncertainty aggravates the mental illness or whatever they're going through. Unfortunately, one of the biggest uh, damaging aspects on a macro level of this last year of 2020 has been the theft of our certainty, the theft of our ability to plan, whether it's to go out to, to lunch with a friend, to travel, to go to a wedding, to attend a funeral, uh, major milestones and, and also day-to-day -day seemingly insignificant tasks that we need to think about, plan and organize and ultimately look forward to. Even if it's a funeral, for example, there is an important place for grief and bereavement in our society. We might not be excited about a funeral, but it provides something that's very meaningful to us spiritually, if we're religious, religiously, socially, uh, emotionally, psychologically, and that's all been removed. It's all been stripped from us. And so we're looking at a kind of uh, ongoing reel of sort of frozen motion where nothing's really moving forward. And that has to stop. It has to be uh, unstuck so that we can actually plan our lives. Anything that we can do to unstop that and allow us to have more certainty in our life and, and plan our lives will allow us to become more human and more social again. And that will, I think, be a step in the right direction. I actually uh, am, am not feeling personally disturbed by a lot of this situation in the sense that uh, I actually know that there is hope and I know that we have actually good news right now your likelihood of actually dying from it if you're under age 50 and healthy is insignificantly small. So there's actually so much good stuff out there to talk about. And there's, a, I think, a, a fear, a pandemic of fear that has locked people into disregarding what is positive, what is hopeful. It's almost like a patient in my practice who comes in who says, you know, I keep thinking about getting sick all day long and I have to keep rearranging the papers in my house and I clean the doorknobs. And I'm not talking about this year, I'm talking about just in general. And I let the patient know, well, you, you do know, of course, that you actually are just as safe as anyone else and you're not likely to get sick and die and you don't actually need to wipe down the doorknobs and organize everything and sterilize this and that. This is really good news. The patient just blinks at me and says, you know, angrily, don't, you know, basically don't take away my fear because I need it right now. And that's a mental illness. That's not a lack of education. That's not a lack of understanding that is an illness at a social level. 
And that's why I sometimes feel like the solution is readjust themselves psychologically to a more normal psychological state. It sounds like that patient and, and others, I'm sure, are almost clinging to fear as a sense of identity. And with all this uncertainty, if there's one constant, it's fear. Correct. You know, it sounds like that might be that patient situation, probably a, a large population of people that have just been scared. People that have been close yes. to me have dealt with the same thing. When you have patients that are coming in and obviously are affected by what's going on and what are some practical ways that you might be telling them to try and overcome some of what they're dealing with? A few things that I brought up in my practice recently, once I acknowledged to the patients that we are to a large degree, very limited in being able to plan our lives. We're very limited in being able to make use of basic choices and liberties that we've taken for granted for a long time, such as going to shop, being able to eat with friends in retail establishments outside of your house, uh, go to school, uh, get on a plane, all of these basic things we don't have. So some patients come to me and they say, I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. I just feel completely at a loss. And what I tell them is there are actually things that are very valuable and important that are still under your control. And if you don't want to be an activist, you don't want to go march, you don't want to write letters to the editor, that's fine. Uh, if you don't want to take risks and express a courageous stance in fighting for what is important, there are still things that you can do for yourself that will be helpful. And one of them that I brought up to quite a few anxious patients recently is somatic awareness training or somatic meditation, which is a fancy way of saying building awareness about how you feel in your body. A lot of people are trapped in their heads right now. They're trapped with anxiety, fear, depression, and they're completely disconnected from their body. They may have a hyper awareness of things that are going on in their body, but it's not a real awareness. It's more like a, a reactive awareness. What I instruct and recommend people to do is to take time every day when they get up in the morning or perhaps in the evening, but usually the morning is better because that's where you have most of your focus and energy. And it also helps to start your day on a right track and just stand up and spend uh, 10 to 15 minutes with your eyes closed, just taking your attention from the top of your head to the soles of your feet and then back again over about five to seven, five to eight minutes. And then breathe in and breathe out, sweeping your attention from your head to your feet, your feet to your head, not with the goal of cutting and tuning out thoughts and noises, but allowing whatever is coming in to be registered and to pass through. If you do that every day and you do it, even if it's just for five or six minutes, it increases your capacity for attention, real attention, not, not scared, frightened rumination. That's not attention, but real attention to what's actually happening starting with your body and then ultimately outwards towards the world and with other people. And if you can do that, you will build awareness. And awareness right now is in really short supply. People are hypervigilant, but they're not very aware. And I do think it helps lower heart rate and increases the ability to rest, to sleep. It allows you to respond when your body is sort of hyperventilating and be able to lower that speed at which you're breathing and your heart rate is going wild a mile a minute because you're more conscious, you're more aware of what's happening. And that's a wonderful starting point for everything else. All the other things that are very complex, diet, exercise, sleep to some degree, uh, interacting with people, all of those are important, but they all require a level of concentration and awareness that many people just don't have right now. And it's very hard to build that up unless you go to therapists and, and study and read books. And, it's too complicated, but you don't need to do that. You can just take it down 
to a very simple level and just do it on your own, in your own mind, your own body, in your house, on the backyard, you can do it anywhere. And if you do it regularly after uh, a few days to a week, you will start to notice benefits and it will start to create a sense of calm. And I, I would say, I don't like the word empowerment, but there is a kind of empowerment or agency that's developed that a lot of people have lost right now. So that's the first thing that I would suggest for people when they just feel like, I don't know what I can do right now. That's such an incredible point. And I'm a huge advocate of meditation. I do it every morning for 20 minutes. And you talk about the disconnect between the awareness in your head versus your body. And through everything I've read, and you can probably attest and agree to this, if you're lacking awareness in your body, you're not present. And if the awareness is only in your head and you're tied up in your thoughts, you're focused on the past and the future. And the great thing about meditation is bringing the awareness of the body, even if it's just for five minutes, like you said, if you can acknowledge but not identify with those thoughts that are coming through those racing thoughts that we all deal with when we're anxious and stressed, then it really does have, I feel like, compounding effects if you do it consistently every day. It does. Um, Something I like to say to patients is you can't get out of your head by thinking. You can only get out of your head by going into your body. Absolutely. I totally agree. The one question I had referring to adolescence, youth, just bringing it back to that, how do you predict the social dynamic to shift as a result of this pandemic within the youth? This is a tough question because I think that right now, children and youth, adolescents have largely resorted to escaping from problems social problems and also internal issues through social media, electronics, screens, computers, games as well. And I am concerned that kids now who are relying more and more on them because they don't have any other outlets, sports have been taken away from them, spending time with their friends has been taken away, school has been essentially canceled for kids now for up to a year, that they are going to lose the capacity to be able to use other coping mechanisms and other ways to develop themselves. And some of these kids who are really young never really got that to begin with. Uh, anybody who's say over age 30 or so uh, grew up without cell phones, grew up without computers being predominant, certainly portable computers, which are what phones are, iPads, really complex video game systems outside of arcades and you know Atari and Mario Brothers and stuff like that, which already had a kind of somewhat obsessive compulsive effect on children, but it certainly wasn't overtaking them and sports were still pushed, being outdoors was still pushed. I'm not so sure about that now. I am becoming really concerned now that what was a kind of teetering ship with children who were veering towards the autistic, not because of genetics, but just because of their lack of social interaction are now going to be permanently stuck in this autistic state and are going to be just incapable of interacting in society and having and holding face-to-face conversations that they're going to be so uncomfortable and, and unaware of how to do that that they'll just never try and we'll wind up with a generation of people who are really only competent in interacting with the outside world through a device i know that sounds very bleak and i i really hope that i'm wrong but i just see so much evidence of this accruing now that i i would be you know disingenuous if i were to not emphasize it I see this with people I'm close to, you know, family and friends. If for these younger people, it seems like a way that they can ease their social anxiety by just staying with themselves, dealing with what they can control 
the hope that I have, and I'm sure you do as well, is ways to combat that and things that we can do to make sure that these kids are still socializing. And maybe it comes down to the parents. Maybe the parents need to push their kids to get outside once this is all over or just figure out different ways to make sure they're still socializing because that's a muscle just like anything else. It is actually due to the parents. I know families that don't give their kids phones or iPads uh, until they're much older than nine, 10. I, mean, I have parents giving their kids devices when they're just you know, toddlers just to entertain them because the parents don't want to waste their time babysitting the kids or so that's the way they, they see it. And these families who take away the devices or don't give it to them, don't allow them to use it, are now forcing their kids, unfortunately, onto the devices because the kids can't go to school. They have to do their school on an iPad, on a computer. So even the parents that are trying hard are being undermined uh, by this, this past year's worth of bad decisions on the part of um, bureaucrats and elected officials. But I think those kids will still be okay because it's a temporary problem. It's just hopefully for a year. It's not something that they've been growing up with. I think that parents need to instruct and encourage and almost force their kids to challenge themselves in situations where there is no guarantee that they're going to feel comfortable. And that means interacting with people where the outcome of the interactions is uncertain and it's unknown and it's happening in real time. It's not happening through a messaging screen and it's unfiltered. You can't um, change the, the background of the photo. You can't uh, rewrite the history of the event to only focus on the ice cream at the end of the day uh, and avoid all of the fighting and conflicts that happened earlier in the day, uh, which is what you know Instagram and Facebook are all about, about highlighting positive hedonistic, pleasurable aspects of life, which don't uh, actually express what's really happening throughout the event. And kids, once they are pushed to staying in and sticking with an interaction with a person or an event from beginning to end and feeling uncomfortable and being rejected and then asking for acceptance again and then being accepted and then succeeding and failing and all of the things that happen in reality outside of the screens, once they do that, once they go through that experience, they start to develop a sense of identity, a sense of confidence, a sense of being connected to reality. And that allows them to feel more uh, secure that they can become independent as adults and they don't have to live in the garage of their parents and that they can find a way to get a job, to get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, uh, to get married, to go to college, to tolerate loss. I mean, this is life. It's about learning how to live and you don't do that in front of a screen. So it does require parents to push their kids outside into the world, whether they're anxious or not, they have to do it. And it also requires the kids to uh, pursue it on their own and to also surround themselves with other people who are doing that. If you're a, somebody whose disposition is to play games and all you do is spend time with other people who do games, then you're never going to leave the gaming world. You have to surround yourself with people who are not doing online events only, people who like to be outside, people who like to play sport, people who like to travel, so that you'll get pulled out of that. And the positive aspects of interacting with the real world will be reinforced rather than just seeing a kind of echo chamber of reinforcement through social media and gaming. So challenging your children to deal with uncertainty and the real world develops a sense of identity, a sense of confidence, and in turn, independence and the ability to live on your own and do these things that seem to be less and less common in, in today's society. Yes. I was listening to an author recently who said that one of the concerns he has about America today 
is that Americans have lost their appreciation for the despair of life, meaning challenges, losses, real tragedies that happen outside of a computer screen. And those are really important. Life is not just about celebration, it's about living fully. And fully means also losing and feeling pain and being able to get through the pain. Because painful loss and suffering is also important for growth. Growth doesn't occur simply through celebration and simply through pleasant times. That's not growing. I think that the only way to suffer real, as he says, despair of life is to actually be living a life out in the real world. Losing a game or not getting the high score or getting a bunch of people attacking you on Instagram, that's not what I mean by despair of life. That's, that's actually feeding uh, the false sense of uh, lack of value, self-esteem and insecurity because you're not testing yourself in anything that's real. It's all just blips on a screen. So going out and suffering losses, uh, being rejected, being injured physically, falling and breaking your leg, getting sick, all of these experiences that lead to a sense of temporary despair, sadness of what life is made up of is so important for people to develop identity and confidence. What positive takeaways, Dr. McDonald, do you think can come from COVID? What's happened in 2020? Looking at the new year, what are some positives that we can be looking forward to in 2021? We have, and we have been living really, in the greatest era in human history. We have had absolutely everything in terms of opportunity, safety, ability to live and work and play and travel as we, as we would like more than any other generation in history, particularly in this country. I think that it's so important for people as the freedoms return and as people seize them back in some cases, that they actually use them, that we don't go back to the vector that we were heading before, which is to become very isolated physically from other people, socially from other people, um, becoming very, very dependent on electronics, allowing our attention or our concentration to be interrupted constantly by these ego gratifying and vanity gratifying dings and pings and hearts and likes and faces and stuff that come in on our devices. But to never forget that before we had the obligation to stay home and to not go to school and to not work, we had the opportunity to go out whenever we wanted to walk and travel and hug our friends and ask women or men out on dates and go to parties and funerals and weddings and grieve and celebrate. I don't think we really, most of us really appreciated that until this year. And we really owe it to ourselves to remember what we've lost so that when it comes back, we not only take advantage of it, but we insist that it never be taken away from us again and that we learn to fight for it. I think that's a really important lesson that we can learn and something that will help us to become stronger in the future. Gratitude and perspective. Gratitude is the first of all of the virtues on which all the others stand, because without it, you really don't have any other virtues. What trends have you seen in your practice among your patient population since the start of COVID? Well, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised that many patients have shown great resilience and great optimism. I know initially 
when the pandemic hit, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. So people were quite anxious. We didn't really know what was going on. So I think at the beginning of the year, maybe around March, April, there was a lot of anxiety. But then, you know, as we all realized that this was going to go on for a while, you know, I was pleasantly surprised to see that my patients adapted. Um, They kind of accepted it. They learned. We kind of talked about how to just kind of go on with life, even, even though this was going on in the background. You know, obviously the isolation and not being able to socialize and get out of the house as much, you know, obviously that has impacted people. But I found that my patients that at least stay current with their appointments and kind of make it a priority to reach out to me or to other people, I found that people have done pretty well. I'm happy to see that. It may not be the case for everyone, but at least with my patients, they, you know, they kept their appointments. You know, we switched to telepsychiatry, teletherapy, so it was all online video appointments. They were accepting of that. So it's been, I think it's been okay overall. Good. That's great to hear. You talked about isolation. It's something that I deal with personally. I live by myself. You know, when I do socialize with friends in a responsible way, I do feel like the isolation from the past 10 months has affected me. What are some potential long-term health ramifications when it comes to prolonged isolation and how can we um, try and combat that? Extended periods of isolation do exacerbate depression and anxiety and sadness. And I think that's very natural because I think, you know, as humans, we do need some degree of interaction with other people. So I think depression is, is the thing to look out for and to just really be mindful if you are feeling more depressed and you have been isolating, you know, maybe even just go out for a drive or a short walk, you know, even just getting out of out of the home for a short period of time can kind of change the channel in your mind. But that would be the thing I would caution people that, you know, depression is exacerbated many times with isolation. What is your professional opinion on the future of mental health? I'm curious about adolescents specifically, but if you have an opinion about just your overall patient group. I'm optimistic. You know, I think mental health, you know, even in just the last five years, people are talking about it a lot more. um, And that's a welcome change because I would say, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't talk about it as openly. So I think it's good that people are talking about it. More people are willing to get help, go to therapy, see a psychiatrist. You know, I'm sure you've noticed the burgeoning of, like, online therapy and online apps for mental health. So all of that, I think, shows that people are taking it seriously. And unfortunately, there is a lot of depression and anxiety, um, you know, in our society. And that may be due to a lot of different factors. But I think if we talk about it more openly and just realize that a lot of people are going through depression and anxiety and other things, it'll really help because sometimes people feel like they're the only ones going through something, but that's just not the case. Absolutely. I think it's a a growing topic and it's something that is being verbalized more and more. BetterHelp, Lemonade, Mm -hmm. there's all these companies now that are offering these online therapy services and it's great to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hopefully it's not taking away from your business. Um, But yeah, I mean, it probably probably will at some (laughs) point, but you know, I, I think there's still some benefit to seeing someone on a more personal level as well. But, you know, whatever way you can get help, some people prefer that kind of anonymity over, you know, the phone, whereas other people want to know their psychiatrist a little bit more personally. So everyone's different. So whatever you gravitate towards, but as long as you kind of try to get help. Absolutely. 
I've been curious about this, and I want to get your opinion on it. How do you predict the social dynamic to shift as a result of this pandemic? Obviously, we've all socialized in a different way. We're now used to the Skypes and Zooms. And if we do see a friend, family member, coworker in person, it's distance with masks on. Do you see any any shifts in the social dynamic post-COVID when we don't need to wear masks when we're back to normal life? I do think the workforce, the workplace is going to change. You know, I don't think it's going to go back to exactly the way it was. I think a lot more people are going to be working from home. And so I'm sure that will impact socialization as well. So that's the one shift I do see that I think the workplace is going to be altered. And so then we're going to have to make, you know, even more of an effort to leave the home, right? If you don't have to leave home for work, and then you're going to really have to make an effort to leave to specifically socialize. So we might have to be more intentional about our socializing. That's one thing that I think might change after this is done. The work from home component is interesting because that'll stick for a while. A lot of companies are adopting that. Yeah, I think working from home, it has a lot of benefits for many people. But then, you know, the socialization aspect, I think we're going to have to be more intentional about that to make sure we include that in our lives. For people that might not feel comfortable even acknowledging that they are battling depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. what are some things you might tell them as far as ways they can feel comfortable reaching out in a safe space mm-hmm. or just even talking to friends and family to hopefully uh, help? Depression and anxiety are very, very common phenomenon. So that's the first thing I would I would really hope that people would maybe even do their own research online. You know, there are lots of online forums, you know, just kind of recognizing that you're not alone and it's a very natural thing. And, you know, if you're depressed, there's oftentimes reasons, you know, that we can explore in therapy. You know, there are reasons why people are depressed and anxious. You know, obviously part of it is biochemical as well, but even that sometimes is kind of looping back to former trauma or things you experienced at a younger age. So just kind of recognizing that it just means you're human and we all suffer. Um, Nobody's life is perfect. So if you are depressed or anxious, it's not anything to be too ashamed of. It's a very common thing. I looked on your website and how you work with your patients and two things that were mentioned as far as types of therapy was insight-oriented therapy and mindfulness-based therapy along with others such as interpersonal therapy, cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy. I haven't heard of insight-oriented and mindfulness-based therapy as much as the rest that are listed. Do you mind talking a little bit about Mm -hmm. the approaches for those? Insight-oriented therapy is really exactly what it sounds like. We kind of go under the surface a little bit more. We talk about what could be the reasons, you know, what could be the underlying reasons for some of your behaviors or the way you react to things. So it's kind of just a way of helping the patient kind of have their own insights or their own aha moments in therapy where they connect, you know, oh, maybe this is why I I behave this way or this is why I do what I do. So I found that, you know, having those insights is really helpful. You know, obviously the next step then is maybe acting on those insights, but having those insights, you know, I think is what people come to therapy for. Mindfulness-based therapy, it's really about just learning to be mindful in your day-to-day life. And by mindful, you know, we mean being aware in the moment, kind of taking a step back and observing yourself and observing your thoughts and your behaviors. So, for instance, if somebody says something to you and you get really angry or you notice your heart is racing, you know, in the past you might just have glossed over that and tried to distract yourself. Whereas maybe being mindful, you could notice that anger and that anxiety and you could say, oh, I notice that I'm feeling really anxious and angry right now. 
I'm going to take a deep breath. You know, what could this anger be about? It doesn't mean that you have to fix it or solve everything on your own right away, but mindfulness is just about being aware in the moment of what is going on inside of you. And I think, you know, having that space between what happens to you and your reaction is really helpful. So, for instance, if you are really angry, you know, in the past you might have, I'm not saying you specifically, but just in general, you know, let's say you like punch a wall or something, which is, you know, I'm not saying, you know, some people release their aggression that way. But let's say instead, if you're mindful, you notice that you're getting really angry inside and you say, okay, I I noticed this. I'm really angry right now. What's going on? You know, let me take a breath. Let me distract myself. Maybe watch something on TV. So it's just a matter of being more aware on a minute-to-minute basis of what's happening inside of you instead of just kind of being unconscious about your emotions. Self-awareness. Meditation you probably recommend as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know that can be a hard thing to get into. So I always just recommend starting with five minutes, you know, and not to take it too seriously, because I think there's so much now out about how to meditate. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be overwhelming. So I just say, you know, start with five minutes. And that's all, you know, you don't have to do more than that initially. The one thing I noticed when we first started talking, your outlook is very positive on mental health and Your patients probably appreciate that a lot, and it was great to hear from you because oftentimes what we're seeing is, you know, far from positivity. What takeaways do you have from 2020, positive or negative, in terms of mental health, mental health awareness? What specifically did you take away from the past year? It's been a hard year for everyone. You know, nobody could have predicted it. But I have been pleasantly surprised at how quickly society adapted or how quickly people adapted, you know, even switching to online, you know, businesses. I know not every business could do this, but many businesses quickly switched to online, you know, they adapted. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. So I think that just shows that humans are resilient and, you know, nothing like this has ever happened to us before in our lifetimes, but we've made it through. I mean, you know, this is still going to go on for a while. So I think it's been a hard year for everyone, but we still kind of made it through. So I think, you know, to take some heart from that, that we're a resilient species in a way. You know, I was reading somewhere that there was so much innovation this year, like the amount of innovation that you'd usually see over a decade, you know, it was crammed into like a, a nine month period. So that was an interesting way to look at it. That's a great point. And then looking forward to 2021, we're at the start of a new year. What are some things that you think we can maybe work on as far as mental health, but also things we can look forward to? Well, I hope we can look forward to healthiness, right? I think it's still up in the air. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but I hope we can look forward to health, people being healthy and the vaccine working and being available to everyone. So that would be my first wish that we can look forward to healthiness. But before that, before things go back to normal, you know, I think just once again, you know, the isolation factor, because we're still kind of on lockdown in many places. So just asking yourself, okay, what can I do to help myself with this isolation? You know, can I go for a drive or go for a walk? What can I do so that I'm not so alone during this pandemic time? Because I do think, you know, that affects people negatively. So that would be my, you know, advice, if you want to call it advice for 2021, since there's still so much uncertainty, you know, ask yourself, you know, how can I reach out to people, you know, 
whether it's online or via phone or going for a walk outside, you know, how can I keep reaching out to people? Yeah, staying physically active and also socially connected in some way. Yeah, and, you know, I know it's hard, but as I said before, I do think depression, it gets worse when you isolate more. I can speak on that firsthand because I definitely have been through that the past year. It almost feels like you spiral, and then the longer it goes on, the harder it is to get out of it. So you really have to act on it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Then it's a slow climb, yeah. but, you know, when you get out of it, then you can look back and you grow as a person. You realize that, you know, there are brighter days ahead, and it takes work, though. You know, the concept of self-compassion is so vital and so important. Have you heard of that, that concept? No. I would... Yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, your listeners and you, like, look that up. But self-compassion is so important, and all that means is just being really gentle and kind with yourself. So let's say there's a day that you know that you should leave the house, but you don't. You don't need to beat yourself up about that. You know, the self-compassionate response would be, okay, you know, I didn't make it out today, but I'll try again tomorrow. You know, the key is just not to kind of be mean to yourself, because that, that also worsens depression and anxiety positive self-talk. We all are victims of speaking poorly about ourselves to ourselves. I think self-compassion really helps people change a lot of that negative self-talk, and it's really transformational. When you start being nice to yourself, it really changes everything. I like that a lot. I'll start using that. And that brings it back to being self-aware. Yeah. Be self-aware enough mm -hmm. that if you do have that negative talk, try and be more compassionate to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes a big difference. I just want to end by saying once again that everyone goes through things. So I would just hope that people don't feel like there's something wrong or bad about them if they have issues with depression or anxiety, because many, many people are dealing with that. You know, it's natural, it's normal and very common and, and don't feel like you're alone. Thank you for listening to Real Men Do Cry. If you like what you heard, please follow and share with anyone else that may find value in the episode. Podcast officially has an Instagram. Go follow at RMDCPod for all updates on new content. Thanks again for listening. See you guys next week.